Welcome to the Sanctum Sacorum Podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N, specifically as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game, and we're here to help you serve this offering at your DCC RPG table. I'm Bob, and with me tonight are David... What's up? ...and Jen. Howdy, guys. Tonight we're covering The People of the Pit by Abraham Merritt. Hmm, that title sounds familiar. Uh, Dave, you chose this, so uh, tell us what it's about. People of the Pit features a pair of prospectors, Star Anderson and the narrator Frank, who are exploring the north, looking for gold. There are hints of a backstory between the two men, painting them as more than mere prospectors, and it creates an anticipation for oddness to come. We are then introduced to a secondary narrator, a man who, in classic fashion, crawls near dead into the men's camp, and the manner of his crawling is horrific in itself. This is no collapsing half-stagger, no dragging himself along the floor, but as the narrator says, it was like a baby crawling upstairs. The poor paws lifted themselves in grotesquely infantile fashion. On top of this, he wears a band of gold around his waist, and a chain. Gold, of course, is what brought the explorers to this place, but when they remove it, it was like no gold I have ever handled. It had an unclean, viscid life of its own. It clung to the file. It was loathsome. Something is clearly not right when a man in search of gold actively throws it away. The story then turns to the tale of the narrator, telling a story of a lost civilization in the bottom of a ravine. Not any old ravine, however, but imagine the Grand Canyon five times as wide and with the bottom dropped out. As one can expect, it gets a lot weirder from there. Yes. Yes, it does. Nicely done. Cool little story. I enjoyed it. Well, good. You picked it. it? Yeah. Well, it wasn't like I had an idea what I was picking. I just said, ooh, People of the Pit. That looks cool. Let's do it. This was my first delving into Merritt's writing. I thought that his style was something a lot of readers would enjoy. His descriptions were really surreal, and he has a way of putting a fine lace of beauty over something that ends up being quite alien with regards to what lies within the pit anyway. The description of the crawling man who escaped the depths was really intense, and it had me envisioning all sorts of boogery. Boogery? Yes, I'm using that word today a lot. Boogery. How about you, Jen? (laughs) You know, the writing of the narrative struck me as if Vance and Lovecraft had gotten together. Yeah, I like that. But the dialogue really makes this story. The survivor did everything in his power to defy the things getting to his body, even in death. Uh, While reading it, gotta say, the imagery kept blending with my own recollection of DCC modules that I've read or judged or played in, so I think that's an obvious tell as to some authors' inspirations. (laughs) Based on when this was written, this is sort of a pre-Lovecraft heyday proto-Lovecraftian story. This easily could be paired with Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness or any number of other things of that sort in that vein. And I think that it captures, as he's descending into the ravine, it sort of captures that alien sense of wonder of what he's seeing as he gets to the bottom in the strange trees. And I have to agree with David, there's kind of that surrealistic flow to the way Merritt writes his descriptions and put things together that really comes together tight. Yeah, but it wasn't overbearing. I mean, I, I thought it was, I don't know, everything just seemed smooth. It read very smoothly, I think. I agree. The whole thing flowed. In the case of the second narrator, you have an unreliable narrator. You're not really sure if what he's telling them is the truth or if it's the truth as he remembers it. He's been through so much, but there's so many weird little hints. And really, flowing straight into things to stat, 
in my opinion, the things the story hints at are as interesting as the story itself. Lines like, My mouth was as dry as though Lao Tsai had poured his fear dust down my throat. Or, It makes me think of the frozen hand of cloud that Shan Nadur set before the gates of ghouls to keep them in the lairs that Eblis cut for them. How could you not want to stat these things? <laughs> and those are just throwaways from page one. They're just kind of hints that these guys have this shared backstory. I immediately start thinking of Lao Tsai as some sort of like Lovecraftian cho-cho patron with a patron spell that makes dust that steals the fire from men's backbones. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Iblis, devourer of the earth, a great burrowing worm that's worshipped like a god among the undead. Or even Shan Nadur, a ghoul wizard of great power with a spell focus on weather control. And those things really got my imagination spinning. And there's plenty of other stuff that comes up as he's going down, but just that first page so gripped me. So I guess we know what we're going to see in the fanzine after the show. Uh, quite, quite possibly, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think other than what you said, I got more ideas for potential adventures than I did for things to directly stack. I definitely love the mention of the Gate of Ghouls. I mean, that's just, that sounds like an adventure in and of itself. Yeah. The story made me kind of wonder if the creatures in the pit were some sort of offshoot of the ghoul, which lends itself well to Goodman's suggestion of making all the typical creatures that we place in our RPGs, giving them kind of an odd twist. So who's to say that these glowing spheres or slug-like creatures couldn't actually be some sort of dimensional ghoul? You know, that would be kind yeah. of... Yeah, dimensional ghouls and death lights. And yeah. It's kind of messed the, uh, up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, this was really cool. I mean, it, it wasn't so much the directness of it. It was just like Bob said, there was a lot of touching lightly on things that really kind of sparked the imagination. Constant mention of the crimson trees at the bottom of the pit. I think that kind of made me start to think about how many times have I ran a party through a forest and you don't think anything about the trees or when you're statting stuff up, but how about a forest of trees that have been tainted by some dark eldritch energy that actually has given them some crazy Ooh. weirdness, you know, over the Ooh. span of centuries. So yeah. Those are oh, some I, of the things that I pulled from it. You know, I just think that you could, you could go a lot of different directions with this little short story. How about you, Jen? Come on, guys. Giant, transparent slugs. <laughs> Yeah. Don't go into the pit without your shot shaker. <laughs> exactly. I mean, since it starts out in the Alaskan wilderness and they're looking toward that mountain shaped like a hand and everything, you know, I immediately spring to things like climbing gear. But you're going to need something a little bit more than that to deal with this particular area, lest your hands end up like this guy's. Yeah. Honestly, the interior, or I should say the caverns and the pit itself, it was a good read, but something about the constant description of the short summer nights and the biblical references, like the winds at creation blowing at the trees that had given Lilith shelter, and the outside itself provided a little bit more inspiration for me. Well, point. I thought yeah, I thought I the that. biblical references really kind of gave it this immense sense of scale and weight. Yeah. It almost made things a little bit more believable from that second narrator who came in. You could think he's crazy, but he's comparing it to these things that any good God-fearing man should know, so... I think that captures it really well. Definitely. What about props and audio, David? For audio, for some reason, I kept uh, listening to some tracks, and I'm probably going to kill his name, but I think it's Svart Griners. The name of the LP is Knife, and we'll post a link up for you guys, but it's very 
dark ambient kind of music. It's really hard for me to describe it to you guys, but I promise you if you listen to a couple of tracks, you'll say, yeah, this is something that should be playing in the background during an adventure of this sort, because it's kind of dark, it's foreboding, and I think it builds some tension at certain points, so give that a listen. For some reason, this adventure, you guys, it's funny because I think we kind of went to different directions with it, and to a degree, and for me, I think it took place in the 1900s, right? Maybe 1900, Bob? It was almost timeless. The secondary narrator says that he grew graduated, I think, from Princeton or Yale. I think it was Yale. In 1900. The story was released in 1918, and it's probably set about that time. Yeah. So it gave me kind of a Western feel. I don't know why. You know, I could just see prospectors looking for gold and, (laughs) you know, stumbling upon this, this forgotten civilization. So there's kind of a dark... I don't want to say country. I'm not really sure how to categorize it, but it's We have all kinds of music, country and Western. Well, I don't know if it's either one of those. It's kind of got its own sound, but if you had to put it in a category, I would say Dark Country. And it's a group called 16 Horsepower, and the LP's called Low Estate. But they've got a lot of different material. There's material that's out, and I think you could pick and choose from some of those tracks that just kind of give you that Mm. out in the middle of nowhere, but kind of lost. It's just a very foreboding feeling that I get sometimes from listening to it. Those are my two musical picks, but as far as props... You know, the story kind of fell silent on me a little bit with this one, but I do think that you could, if you wanted to use a prop, you could use a canteen, and the uh, the crawling escape man actually talked of a canteen that the creature is filled with a milky substance that energized him, so you could maybe put that on the table as something that the players found and fill it full of some, I don't know, milky substance of some sort. <laughs> uh, that might be cool. I did get an idea, though, and this may, it may actually play out and be totally ridiculous, but the, the constant mention of uh, when the narrator, the uh, the man who was imprisoned by these creatures, when he mentions trying to hide from them initially and they discover him with their little tendrils just kind of glancing across his face, I thought it would be really cool. <sighs> Yeah, I mean, it kind of gives you a little bit of a creepiness, but what if you, one night, you had an encounter that was based on the darkness, or maybe there was a mist that the players couldn't see through, and to simulate that at the table, you gave them all blindfolds, and of course, they'd have to trust you a lot, and I'm not sure my group would. <laughs> but, For good um, imagine, uh, imagine being blindfolded and having some really eerie, creepy music in the background, and then you have this encounter described as a really creepy, maybe it's underground or in the forest, and throw in some background noise, and the players as they get through it they're trying to maybe steer their way towards a certain area you have maybe some tassels or something other that's wispy that you can just kind of brush against their arm or their face you could even go as far as combat if if you wanted to do an encounter with no dice you could do paper rock scissors to kind of get through them you know there's a lot of stuff you could do with that kind of encounter but i do promise that i haven't done any lsd today so today i I don't know man i I might (laughs) skip your table now (laughs) (laughs) Between the rotting meat and the blindfolds, I don't know. Mm. You gotta wonder what's in my closets. Oh, Lord. You know, of all things described here, the incongruous parts are what stuck with me. Like the trees with orchids being so out of place in this hellish landscape. You know, there's something to be said for at your gaming table, maybe just this exquisite looking piece of art or figurine, or, or vase, or even just a, a simple little flower off a tree from your backyard. Mm, and yeah. just kind of make people wonder from the moment they sit down, what's going on here? This is different. I was actually thinking, if you have a monkey's paw or something like Todd McGowan's black ebony hand, um, <laughs> that could work in scale as the mountainous prop if you're using miniatures. And if you have a broken paw, 
could illustrate what the guy's hands looked like, since the fingers were all folded into the palm. And... Yeah. Yeah, that was weird. Yeah, kind of gnarly. You know, having a topographical map or silent aerial video of... Oh, yeah. The Alaskan wilderness could really bring this to life, too. I think, Dave, you and I were on the same wavelength for a little bit of this, because that overall feel of the empty landscape, there's a folk singer called Hobo Jim that sounds familiar to what you were talking about, mm -hmm. but, you know, maybe a little bit more upbeat and filled with hope, which could describe the first two guys that you see. Yeah. But also the traditional Inuit music. Mm. Everyone thinks, okay, Native American music, yeah, whatever. Um, No. I found a link to an old album, I think from Columbia. It could be odd or creepy enough to work with in any unexplored or otherworldly terrain. Because it's such alien music to the average listener. Jews harp, you think, okay, there's a little bit of twanging, but there's throat music, and there's just... It's really wild, so I've, I've included a link for that one. Sounds cool. Nice. Thank you. What about you, Bob? Well, you know, the setting like I said, strikes me as being right around the time it was written or maybe shortly after. So I started thinking of music from like the 1920s and the 1930s and music in that style. I think it's kind of cool that this story is over 100 years old and we can actually pull music that's over 100 years old thanks to the wonders of the internet to put along with it. Yeah. So I was thinking of some of the darker jazz, blues, and swing, like uh, huh. East St. Louis Toodaloo by Duke Ellington, Dead Man Blues by Jelly Roll Morton, The Nightmare by Cab Calloway, In the Pines by Leadbelly, and then there's stuff that's kind of in that style, um, Squeeze It the Moocher, which is a riff on Minnie the Moocher by Danny Elfman, huh. The Ghost of Stephen Foster and Hell from Squirrel Nut Zipper. Really? Yeah, Squirrel Nut wow. Zippers. I think everybody knows the the song Hell if they hear it, you know, in the afterlife. <laughs> There's a song from the Twin Peaks soundtrack, Sycamore Trees, by Jimmy Scott, who was kind of a singer of the period, even though the song was recorded, of course, much later. And that's really kind of dark and somber and creepy. Okay, I'll agree with you on that one. <laughs> Yeah, and you could pretty much use anything from the Twin Peaks soundtrack. It's kind of that creepy, weird jazz and things like that. Just the vintage of the period or beyond the modern recordings that really hit that tone. It sets the mark for me, I think, on the background music for it. As for props, I think that gets a little tougher. Because most people either have snow or they don't. And if they do have <laughs> snow, they might have it that time of year or they might not. Yeah, it was summer. <laughs> But it was somewhere in Alaska, in the Great North, where All it's right. pretty much always snowy. Inuits aren't the tropical-dwelling people. But if you get some really cool bits of rock, for example, if you're prospecting, digging into the mountains with a pickaxe, trying to find a vein of gold, some just kind of weird-looking rocks could really toss a piece in. Some interesting old fossils or replica fossils, like the replica trilobites and things like that. Weird things that the party might be finding in the ground as they're prospecting before an adventure based on this were to take off, to kind of give them that feeling of cool but strange and kind of creepy. Yeah, like to take the place of, okay, so you're in a bar. Yeah, you know, you're you're on an expedition. You're panning for gold. I mean, my goodness, you could be can panning for gold in rivers. You could be, be digging for gold. You could even set it up as a funnel. I mean, you're prospectors. That's what you are. You're not adventurers. You're prospectors. Yeah, yeah. You're isolated up in the north. It's cold. The days are long. The nights are short. But 
those knights. I kind of like that idea, because then you could branch out just a little bit more, and some of you are not prospectors so much as you run the dogs. Yeah. So, I mean, you could do something like that, and I think it would be a lot of fun. That would also, I think because of the time period, you know, if you wanted to run something set a little bit earlier you could kind of give it an Old West feel. Thinking of, like, the California Gold Rush and things, well, there was also the Alaskan Gold Rush. Uh, Music that I didn't think was appropriate, like North to Alaska by Johnny Horton, kind of talks about (laughs) that sort of thing. Johnny Horton, not an artist, I think, that really goes with DCC. But again, there's that whole Yukon exploration vibe that you can get. Yeah. That's what I got. So... What about your DCC inspirations and reskins, since since we're kind of moving that direction anyway? Well, yeah, and since we keep talking about the almost Western feel of it, well, Dark Trails, it's kind of a shoe-in. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, definitely when I was reading it, I was like, man, this could be... Uh, I mean, and that's cool, you know, and when you when you read a Appendix in, you're like, this would make a great Western adventure, but uh, Black Powder, Black Magic would be great. Uh, mm-hmm. When and if Dark Trails ever comes out, you could definitely use that. <laughs> I was actually wondering if you were going to start writing it to be an adventure under Dark Trails. <laughs> I shouldn't put it past you, right? No, you shouldn't. <laughs> 1918, I think it's out of copyright. Oh, there you go. Ta-da! Might be pu- okay. The story might be public domain at this point. But it's kind of cool that we went, I mean, we've all kind of gone in different directions with this. Bob, you hit the 20s and the 30s, the 1920s and 30s. And that's a totally different kind of genre. It's got a different feel to it. I think that's really cool. And then, you know, uh, myself and Jen kind of got maybe a little bit of a Western kind of I think I went 20s and 30s because I'm an old Cthulhu player, and that's yeah. my zone. Well, and that's my zone. The, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and David, you were really engrossed in the pit itself, and I was yeah. kind of more a fan of above ground. And yeah, but I love the fact that this is probably the most diverse we've gotten with our takes on the yeah, material. We, we ran yeah. in different directions, I think. This guy finds two high rocks and says, how was I supposed to know they formed a gateway? And I'm just thinking, can we say portal under the stars? Come <laughs> on. <laughs> that gate of ghouls that was mentioned brought me back and made me think of my favorite DCC gate that Job created in Glipcario's Gambit. Oh, cool. Mm. Oh, yeah. Creepy, disturbing, everything it should be without being over the top. I know it's odd to think of Job not doing something over the top, but, you know, <laughs> it was perfect, trust me. It reaches the edge without spilling over. <laughs> there you go. Tower Out of Time fits this really well. It seems like a mountain at one point. It, it beckons people in, and you go inside, and Flora's out of place. You know, there's even the quote of those should have gone out with the dinosaurs. So, yeah. uh, of course I'm brought to Tower Out of Time. That would be Michael Curtis. And gotta say, honestly, one of the reasons the pit just didn't really resonate with me this time around, just had that sense of despair because it was given through a first-person narrative. And with the whole attitude of, I'm gonna die soon, just take me further away from that thing. I am totally feeling Blacks on Death Crawl all the way. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think about that. That's yeah, spot on. Crawling up the mountain to get away and crawling up even though he knows he's going to die anyway. He just doesn't want to die in their hands. I should check. I just have this feeling because Blacks on Death Crawl. Blacks on Death Crawl. Yeah. Is so appropriate. I think so many times we've done you know, this <laughs> is our 18th episode. And I think it maybe ranks number two after Sailors on the Starless Sea of adventures that we have <laughs> mentioned the most. This is true. Much love great, to James a, McGeorge. Yes, it well is. done, well adventure. done. 
Yeah, my favorite, how... He's my favorite beard in Texas. Well, <laughs> Shows how much it affected me, right? And that whole kind of stumping, crawling along, that is very much something I can see in Black Sun Death yep, Crawl. totally. For me, I thought, based just solely on the harsh, cold environments that were used, I think that the 2013 holiday module, The Old God's Return, and the 2015 holiday module, Advent of the Avalanche Lords, could both be good setups for an adventure based on this story or follow-ups to an adventure based on this story. Hmm. Just based on the environments, you could kind of shoehorn them together pretty nicely, I think. There's a free adventure from Christopher Wood called The Singing Hill, and it really captures that nice feeling of a slow descent into unknown territory. And while it's a very different setting than that of this story, I think it captures a lot of the same feelings, and it gives you a different take. It gives you a, a warmer climate take on descending in, into the ground. And, you know, it's a free adventure, so you can't go wrong there. Can't beat that. <laughs> With a little reworking, Mark Knight's Tomb of the Ghast Queen, which is another free adventure, could easily be changed into the Tomb of Sean Nadur. Uh, seriously, I totally groove on the idea, and the original module itself is its pretty well written, it makes for a tight little adventure, and it has a few really interesting new ideas. It's an adventure that, if you wanted to, you could run as a funnel that has a required maximum number of survivors for completion. <laughs> so if there's if there's huh? too many people, you still can't get through it. the The adventure itself is neat because your wow. your criminals that are that are put into this tomb, and there's extra criminals in there with you. It's punishment, and only the survivors get to leave. But there's X number of survivors. And you find that out as you go. And it's it's not a huge adventure, but it's really nice. And again, it's a free community adventure. I think it was originally written for, like, 5th Ed, and then it was ported over for DCC when someone said, hey, that'd be a good DCC adventure. And Mark hopped on it. And he thought that it was better for DCC than 5th Ed. And I kind of agree. I think the adventure's a better fit. So those were my adventure combos that I thought kind of tied into this well, besides the obvious, but we'll get there. Getting a little obscure on us there, Bob. Well, there's a a lot of stuff out there from the community, though. I I wasn't aware of either one of those adventures, so I'm really hyped to to check them out after the show. Yeah, it can be tough to keep track of everything. Oh my goodness. Uh, What about you, David? Well, I kept thinking back to the Dark... Well, I shouldn't say Dark Master. What would we call Terry Olsen? What would his nefarious name say? Um, He's the shadowy minion. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you hear that, Terry? You're the shadowy minion. Uh, like kept... number four. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Elzamon and the blood-drinking box. Uh, you know, th- there was a long, long set of spiral stairs that was part of the adventure. I think it even went uh, oh, a yeah. couple of days. And in the story we read, you know, it took him... How many days did it take him to get to the bottom of the stairs? Oh, yeah. So I kept going back to that little adventure, which you can find that now. I think it was a free RPG day adventure, but it was recently compiled with Chaos Rising, the Mm -hmm. games adventure. So you guys can pick that up. But it's kind of cool, and then it's all darkness, and you're going down these stairs for days. Unfortunately, there were no hairless cats in the story we read, but you can find those (laughs) in Terry's adventure, and that's always a plus with me. There are also a couple of short adventures published by Mystic Bull Games in the adventure compilation In the Prison of the Squid Sorcerer. Oh, yeah. There were a couple of adventures in there that kind of touched upon the theme of the story for me. One in particular was Mermaids from Yugoth, which is written by the illustrious Daniel Bishop. 
Uh, we <laughs> mentioned him quite a bit on the show. Nice Lovecraft reference. Yes. He uh, he really sort of captured the alien feel. It kind of reminded me of the story a little bit. But what really, I think, was really cool about the, this particular adventure is that it was written to be dropped into a current adventure in small pieces. So your adventurers would possibly, at some point, through something that you're currently running them through, sort of get a taste of this, and it builds up which I think is really cool. In the end, of course, you face the mermaids of Yugoth, which are very terrifying and dripping with Lovecraft goodness. And <laughs> as a bonus, Daniel gives you an awesome... Uh, if you're listening, Daniel, this was so cool. Uh, there's a rule mechanic for cracking open a skull and stealing the brain. So, woo, oh, much better than that. That's so, awesome. Than, you know, there's things that you read, and you're like, man, I wish I'd come up with that mechanic because it's so cool. It works very well. I think a judge looking for some brain food that might lead to a cool homebrew session should definitely read the story people have picked. I think you guys could, I don't know, you can go in so many different, different directions with the story. Awesome. That sounds like a lot of fun. So I think, since we've mentioned People of the Pit numerous times since we've been reading the story, <laughs> I think that brings us to our DCC yeah. feature for the show, The People of the Pit. But Guess what? Good. There's an adventure by the same title. I know. What are the odds? Awesome. Matter of fact, it's what, the third adventure released for DCC RPG? It's it's the third DCC. module, yes. Yeah, because there's a couple in the book. Yeah, so one of the first. And it is level one. You could actually run it as a funnel, or you could scale things up and run it as level four or five, which I have admittedly done. Oh. It's good stuff, and I couldn't find the module in my shelving at first, and I was freaking out. It's because it was still in my campaign binder, because I keep going back and referring to some of the critters and keeping them in as recurring things that the characters glimpse here and there. It's made an impact, I think. Why don't you read us the adventure synopsis, Bob? It has been years since the last virgin was sacrificed, and now the pit beast awakens once more. Every generation it stumbles forth on undulating tentacles from its resting place deep below the great ravine, its towering, blubbery mass ravaging the land before returning to slumber for decades. But this time is different. The great beast strikes with intelligence. Bands of faceless, gray-robed men emerge from the tenebrous depths, herding the beast's roaming tentacles before them. The enigmatic people of the pit live despite the passage of ages. The earth shakes each night as they herd the primordial tentacles ever further, while the villagers ask, Is any man brave enough to put the sword to this menace? Awesome. The pit beast needs virgins! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is an awesome adventure. Yeah. I, I loved it. And the cultists arriving in different stages and in different stages of being, I should say. It's definitely one of those that has replayability, especially if your group only goes through the first little bit and doesn't cover the rest. You can pull out the rest and throw it into your adventure later on. Definitely. Very true. Yeah. Watch out, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Great, yeah. Y'all skipped like, a lot of like stuff. Not like we didn't get brutalized enough when we played this. <laughs> just to make the tie-in clear, it's not just the title. Well, okay, it was an easy pick, but there are some <laughs> quotes from the book from Merritt. Like, the people of the pit, things that the devil made before the flood and that somehow have escaped God's vengeance. Yeah, okay, that fits. Yeah, yeah, yep, it does. Good. Dozens of waving tentacles stretching from round, gaping mouths. Yeah, done. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, I thought I'd try something new and, and not just go through a laundry list of 
okay, here's things that they have in common. Well, there's a couple, but the quotes really drive it home for me even more. Yes, you have steps that lead along the pit and go down into this mile-wide thing, and it goes half a mile before a landing, just like in the book. There might be a cavern to duck into along the way. Once you get in, there's definitely auras of color in certain areas. There's Jen with color again. Well, (laughs) as, as Merit specifically said, the aura of red in the temple in which this guy was kept prisoner by the chain around his waist. It would darken for nights on end and then alleviate a little bit. And then for nights in a row, it would be deep red again. And that's all he could see was red. Yeah. Yeah, much like the people in Merritt's pit, there are methods of keeping people there once they're drawn in. Very true. There's phases. There's, for lack of better phrasing, I'll call them harvesting areas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the whole adventure could either be like the prehistoric predecessor of the story we read or maybe a millennium later follow-up. I guess it depends yeah. on if you're a Thundar MCC sort of person or not. There's so <laughs> many delightful parallels in the story. The varied openings in the walls as you descend down, which you mentioned just the eeriness of the worshippers. The adventure for me was kind of hard to wrap my brain around as a player, but in a good way. It kind of kept bending and twisting me in ways I didn't foresee, and so it wasn't just as straightforward as it sounded. Go down pit in ground, kill things, come back up. (laughs) No. (laughs) There was a lot of just weirdness and strangeness, and because of that, I think it really matches the story that way perfectly, and a bit of cross-pollination of the two tales could make for some great stuff. Change the cultists of the adventure to the living lights of the story, and I think you're going to get even a creepier vibe than you already have. Just these lights that drift anywhere from two to eight feet up whispering and talking. But then again, you know, gray faceless people are pretty creepy too. So, I mean, you can go either way. Yeah. I I did mention that you you missed a few parts, so uh, that's not to say there isn't already that kind of stuff in there, babe. (laughs) Well, it's uh, good good to know that we got out when we did. Uh, (laughs) Actually, if I ever think about it, if you guys talk to Joseph before, I want to ask him if he read the story before he wrote this adventure, because it's when you, we talk about reskinning adventures, there's so, I mean, there's just a few things you really would need to change, like the creatures, because the pit, the way it's described, I mean, it's just such a close, I don't know, it, it's so close to this adventure. And this adventure, just for you know, guys, if you haven't ran this, this is one of the few uh, that I have read that I've wanted to run, but for some reason I just always, you know... You've got so many good adventures uh, for DCC to throw at people, and unfortunately they only stay first level for so long, which you could uh, do what Jim said and kind of upstat things, which I never thought about doing, so I may end up doing that. But this adventure itself, you know, you guys could take uh, Black Powder, Black Magic, and you could definitely drop something like this, you know, in the Grand Canyon. And oh, yeah. 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 Just throw, throw a different shade of gore onto the creatures, and I think you'd have a really good Weird West adventure for something like that. Well, yeah, and since you need the mountain to draw you in, I suddenly have this image of the western that leads to the Tower Out of Time, and this is mm-hmm. below it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The module itself... It really does depend on your party. It might take you more than one session to finish yeah. it if you're running it as per the book, but I think that's good. Yeah, I don't know if you could run this at a con in one session. You would definitely have to... Skip to the end, or or skip to something, yeah. But it's an awesome adventure. And getting to your, you know, did Joseph read this story point? I mean, Joseph has made no secret that he hunted down and pretty much read every piece of appendix and literature he could lay hands on 
as well as other pieces by those authors. So I don't think it's a, a stretch of the imagination that he's read this. I think that it's evocative enough of the story that I'd almost be certain, but it's different enough that it's not just oh, it's yeah. not just someone riffing on the story and saying, oh, well, I really like the story, here's the module. It's, I really liked the story, here's what inspired. Yeah. And you get a really creepy bit of... Uh, adventure for that. There's also a unique way of handling mazes in this adventure, which I think is pretty cool. When I was doing a, a ride in the Carnival of the Dam, that was one of the things I was trying to come up with, uh, was a maze and how to run players through a maze where it actually felt like a maze, you know, but it actually still worked mechanically. And this is, uh, there's definitely a, a really cool idea here with, uh, I think it, did Kovacs do the maze in this? I think he did. Um, probably. I believe so, yeah. <laughs> and the art, art's great. The maps are awesome in this. The, the colors of the cover just pop. You know, you were talking about trying to find your people in the pit. Well, I went to my big stack of Goodman Games goodness, and, and there was that, I don't know, snot green binding <laughs> I was looking at, and I was like, that's it, that's it. So, but this is one of my favorite <laughs> covers, too. I love it. Yeah, they put it on one of the faces of the lunchbox that they were selling at yeah. uh, Gen Con. So, of course, I had to have that. It's interesting because in one of the mails that we got from Joseph, we as in Sanctum, he actually mentions Merritt as one of the authors that doesn't get as much recognition. Oh, how about that? He used to sell millions of copies in his day, but he's pretty much a forgotten name at this point. So it's so I really a good one. Yeah, it's kind of cool to dig into something that's more obscure for the sake of revitalizing it as opposed to just for the sake of being obscure. Well, and I think that part of the reason that Merritt hasn't really enjoyed a huge longevity amongst most gamers is a lot of the Appendix N authors, when you look at the Appendix N list, it's this story, this story, et al., you know, and others. Mm -hmm. And Merritt, I, his only reference is the moon pool. And yeah. Yeah, this is a really tight, creepy short story that you know, anybody can read in, in just a short amount of time, but there's so much to it. It's so evocative, the way the language kind of drifts in and out of, of real versus surreal. It's solid. He certainly deserves better than he has gotten. And for any judges out there that are you know, familiar with running DCC, I think it would be fairly simple for you if you were to get your hands on this, take the half hour to an hour to read it, and soak it in. The book, that is. <laughs> I think that you could sandbox it. Definitely. Yeah, and I think so. if you had to stat it out, just look at the module, because <laughs> there, there's a really strong corollary. I think that wraps us up quite nicely. Uh, do we have any road crew shout-outs and the like? First off, we've got congratulations going to Thorin Thompson for the successful Yay, funding Thorin. of his Kickstarter for Sky of Crimson Flame. We Give look, it to us now. We, we look forward to this one. There's another Kickstarter from the Hydra Collective, the Operation Unfathomable project, which I know Paul Wolf had a lot of work on that. It may end up with a DCC conversion of the materials, so if we get that gold amount of pledges coming... It's got um, about $9,000 to go to hit that level. Uh, a drop in the bucket. For the DCC crowd, definitely. Huge kudos go to Forrest Gary and Bill Hamilton on the launch of the Glowburn podcast. Welcome to the podcasting family. Yay! November brings Gamehole Con in Madison, Wisconsin, with judges like Brendan LaSalle, Jim Wampler, Reed Sanfilippo, Julian Burnick, Doug Kovacs, Michael Austin... And that forest guy again. Actually, we're at Game Hole Con right now. Where are you? Yeah, we're 
Um, <laughs> we're, we're here through the 6th. November also brings Yukon in Ypsilanti, Michigan, with, once again, Brendan LaSalle. We'll also have Laura Rose Williams, Dan Dolm, Clayton Williams, Scott Kellogg, Adam Miskevich, and... You'll get DCC and MCC out of these guys. That's going on November 11th through 13th. Jeff Goad continues the Brooklyn DCC goodness at Brooklyn Strategist. This coming Sunday, November 6th, he's running Revenge of the Overcobald. <laughs> this is one of six DCC modules from Cut to the Chase Games. Hmm, yeah. one to look into. Hmm, and yeah. on November 13th, he'll be running the Shambling Undead. In addition, the Appendix N Book Club will be discussing The Face in the Frost by John Belairs. The Shambling Undead claimed 49 souls during Asheville Scarefest in Montreat, North Carolina, easily beating out the number of fatalities during the Arwitch Grinder, which was a paltry four. Uh, <laughs> well, that's not the Arwitch Grinder, that was like the Arwitch Soft Massage, apparently. Uh, but 49 souls, that's not bad. Yeah. Huge congratulations to Mike Evans for completing the final edits to Hubris. We're all looking forward to its release any yes. day now. Really? In no. my inbox? No. Now? No. Finally, John Hirschberger and the crew of Gong Farmers Local number 282 have made all of the Gong Farmers almanacs from 2015 and 2016 available for free download over on DriveThruRPG. If you haven't gone through these yet, you should. Oh, yeah. It's a motherload. I, I think one of my favorites is the method of creating leveled-up characters that already have flaws, as opposed to those pristine pre-gens with yeah, n no problems now. Well, and there's so much good stuff in the Gog from oh, yeah. from items to monsters to classes to adventures. Yeah. It's, like, it's like the Sears Christmas catalog for DCC. <laughs> Comparable in weight, yes. <laughs> and, and better content by far. You don't throw it out after a year. Uh -uh. Yeah, unlike those old wish books, there's more than just a picture to look at. <laughs> Although the art is great. Let's, let's, not, let's not undercut the, the art. So, free material, free downloads, total labor free. of love from everyone. But, yeah. you know, Taco John is the man. We need you gotta that. love that taco. Yep. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Alright, so you think we're ready to kick this out, guys? I think so. We would love to see what sort of things you guys have created based on your appendix and reading, so submit your events or your creations to us at the hub at sanctum.media or find us on the regular social media sites. Keep out an eye for our future topics and we can include your material in the show or the companion that comes out. Uh, we love art, guys. We need, we need more art. We need articles. We need everything. So we hope Give we've inspired you and thank you very much for listening to us. Yeah. Thank you Yay! very much, folks. Let's go get a beer. All right, guys. Keep judging. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us again next time for a discussion of the work of Andre Norton and Steel Magic. The Sanctum Sequorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2016.